You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So it is July 23rd, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is Meditation and Attachment. Um, deepening your practice and we've been talking the last couple of weeks about the Satipatthana Sutta and actually using a a kind of Mahasi noting style as a way of exploring it but I think that we should uh, take a break from that for a couple of weeks and talk about other things and then we'll go back and finish up the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness that are described in the Satipatthana I've had uh, a bunch of people ask me if I would be uh, kind enough to uh, talk about the ideal parent figure protocol and and explain how that can be useful and then do a guided meditation of it. So I thought that I would do that. Ideal parent figure protocol was developed by Dan Brown uh, in his group in Newport, um, Massachusetts. He's a a professor at Harvard there and uh, lives in uh, Gloucester. And um, so they've developed an approach uh, which is an adaptation of the Mahamudra meditation system that comes from the Tibetan tradition. Dan is a lineage holder in the Rime tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And the Mahamudra is a visualization practice. Um, sometimes in English it's called a deity practice, where you visualize the images that, of the Buddha or the Tara, and in doing so, replace the internal working image of the self. And in doing that, seeing into the nature of the ephemeral nature of the identification with self. It's a different way of working than the usual uh, no-self practices that we uh, tend toward in the Theravada or Vipassana practices. Um, But I think that it's very useful in terms of really beginning to understand the nature of conditioning and how that informs the way in which we make uh, conceptual reality and uh, how uh, the limitations of view um, change um, that perception that we have of the uh, of the nature of our sensing experiences and its conversion into conceptual reality when we approach this through the cognitive mind often we can understand conceptually what these ideas mean but when we come to being able to explore them through direct experience and really understand the nature of conditioning and how it manifests. We don't tend to uh, see it uh, clearly the way that it is. Um, And so using this particular meditation approach, um, I think is actually very useful in terms of illustrating that. So we have the the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it, And when they meet, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises. So you recall from the Satipurana Sutta, 
but no seropresent contact is made, and then the sensing experience is evaluated for uh, vedna or feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then depending on that evaluation, the processing of it changes. If it's urgent and needs immediate attention, it jumps to the head of the queue. If it's neutral and really never going to be of much importance to know consciously, it never enters consciousness. And if it's pleasant, if there's time, then it will enter consciousness. That sensing experience is compared to the perceptual database, which is the reservoir of the conditioned responses or the things that we've experienced. And part of that database is not only what we've experienced, and uh, so the unfixated pattern of sensing that's then converted into conceptual reality, but also our uh, response to what's happening in the present moment. So part of that understanding of what's happening is to know what's happening, also to know how to respond to it, and then uh, track the outcome, and then that begins to develop this uh, database of what is it that's actually happening now and, and how do I respond to it. Um, if you aren't really able to track these, uh, uh, the content of this process, um, then we simply create conceptual reality based on our conditioning and it tends to be very repetitive in terms of what's actually in the database. It turns out that it doesn't matter whether or not uh, it's something that you've previously experienced before and responded to in the world, uh, or it's something that you can imagine. Uh, imagination plays a role here. Uh, in some sense, it's a kind of fuzzy logic where uh, because each time something arises in the present moment, it isn't exactly like uh, what's in the database, uh, and we need to be able to uh, uh, adapt to that. An example might be that if you've known somebody for a long time, their physical appearance has changed, and maybe each time you see them, their physical appearance changes. Um, aging takes a hold, uh, all sorts of different things can happen to them. But yet over a period of say years or decades, you can still recognize them because you've seen the different changes that happen and you're able to sort of uh, synthesize an understanding of what that might be. I'm working on a book and uh, on the cover of the book is a photograph of me from last year and a photograph of me from 19. 79 when I was 23. They're side by side. And the most common response to looking at them side by side is, that's you? <laughs> so I look very different if you just see 23 and 66. But had you seen me over the years, you would have recognized immediately that that's uh, a before and after picture, let's say. Uh, young and old. That's the, the, the work of imagination connecting all of those things together.
uh, when something happens and it's novel and we don't really have the experience of what to do in response to it, the imagination uh, figures out what the response should be. And then we see what happens and we collect that data and put it into the database. The way that human memory works is that it requires a strong emotional component to translate from short-term memory into long-term memory. And so that if there isn't that emotional piece to the experience of the present moment, often uh, it doesn't make it into long-term memory. So we don't, we lose all of that experience. So conceptually, I hope that you can understand this process uh, in Western thought, there are five senses, the ones you're familiar with, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. And in Buddhism, there's the sixth sense. In uh, Theravada uh, practice or thinking, it's, it's that place where the attention goes and it's the collection of the different mind moments that we then convert into conceptual reality. It also is a gateway into the wisdom mind, um, being able to track that process of uh, taking the pure sensing experience and converting it into conceptual reality. Um, and as, the, as your practice deepens, seeing more and more clearly into what that pure sensing experience is and beginning to understand that we know the sensing experience and we create the sense of the world and it's coming from inside and being projected outward. It's not coming from outside and we then understand it. We don't uh, take in the solid sense of the outside world. We take in the undifferentiated vibratory often sensing experience and then we adapt that uh, outward to this solid representation. So depending on where your practice is and how far along you are in, into this investigation of this and to seeing directly that experience uh, would be a gauge of, of how uh, far along the spiritual path you are and how deep the practice has become. And one of the reasons that I like the ideal parent figure protocol so much is that it really helps to make these things more seeable on the, the side of conceptual reality before you get deeply into the exploration of the sensing experience. Because in imagining something, you uh, take uh, the undifferentiated representations and meanings uh, that are in the database and you create out of them a version of conceptual reality, which you can then explore in a conscious way that illustrates that more clearly. One of the things about imagination that's important to understand is that uh, you can imagine positive things and you can imagine negative things as well. And often in imagining negative things or imagining an expectation of a negative outcome, there's a, a, a painful response to that. And so it is possible to begin to uh, limit that. I like to say pinch off is the terms that uh, as an illustration makes sense. If, for instance, in your early conditioning life, you wanted to have some connection or some 
a meaningful exchange uh, with a caregiver and you were unable to do that over and over again, you might pinch off the desire to have that so that each time you are unable to get it, you don't even notice it so that you're in less pain. And, and depending on the circumstances of your early life and how that conditioning went, there could be a lot of these pinches in the capacity to imagine what's actually happening. Um, because uh, we uh, inhabit both this place of undifferentiated, unfixated sensing and the solidness that we make out of it, if we were to talk about that in terms of quantum mechanics, the wave form and then the particle form, it is possible to begin to pinch off the capacity to imagine what's before you to the point that you don't actually see it. And this is how we're uh, talking about view. Uh, in each moment, what unfolds is the, the entire spectrum of potentialities of which you are free to choose any of them, as long as you can see that they're there and there's something that you can choose but if you begin to limit your imagination around this and limit your view around this, even though the potentialities are in front of you, because you cannot see them, you don't know that there's something that uh, there for you to choose if you wanted to. Um, if we rely more and more heavily on actually the experience, the database, and less and less on our imagination, then uh, we tend to get into these patterns of repeating experiences over and over again and, and uh, convincing ourselves through this process that what's available to us is limited to this, this small range of previously experienced things. Sometimes uh, patterns of experience uh, create emotional reactions and we can be open to those emotional reactions, whatever they are, or we can also attempt to avoid afflictive emotional experiences. Uh, often um, the conditions of childhood when they aren't secure enough create a fearfulness in, in the way that we perceive the outside world. And so in experiencing the present moment, we can associate it to the perceptual database and if the memories that are in a similar pattern to what's happening in the present moment also have a fearfulness to them then when we create a, a conceptual reality the experience of the present moment has a fearfulness in it that may not be intrinsic to the experience of the present moment but might be a, a result of the conditioning that we've experienced. And, and so how can you see clearly enough to differentiate the fearfulness of the past with the, the neutrality of the, the present moment if the conditions are different enough that we shouldn't be frightened of them in the present moment? And this is really the exploration of view uh, that comes through meditation. And um, one of the reasons that I think that the Ideal parent figure is so useful is because it really points out in a clear way uh, how that happens, how we go into the database, pull up uh, um, previous experiences and adapt them to fit the conditions of the present moment.
one of my favorite sayings from the Zen world is um, the story of the abbot who goes down to the pond and he throws some fish food into the pond and the koi swim over and he looks down at the koi and he says, how's the water today? And one of the koi looks at another koi and says, what's he talking about? What water? Uh, which uh, uh, always makes me laugh. What water asks the fish? Um, if you're so used to seeing something, if you're so used to creating the world in the way that you do it, it seems like that's how it is. And if we don't have some way of tracking that and opening up uh, beyond our limited conditioning or to repair and open up the imagination, then we are forever uh, stuck in that conditioning. Um, when I was in Myanmar, uh, one of the comments that Sedo uh, made to me after I made my smart ass remark, um, he had told a story of uh, an old woman who, whose family was bothered by her, the slowness of her movement and decided that they would leave her home and take a taxi to the Shwedagon Pagoda in downtown Yangon uh, to make their donations on Pagoda uh, during the Pagoda Festival. And that uh, she uh, went into meta meditation to forgive them for not taking her along. And she became so um, um, intensely concentrated that PT arose and it was the uplifting variety and that on that PT, she flew across Yangon and arrived at the Shredagon Pagoda ahead of her family that had taken a taxi. And when I was inquiring with the Sayado about that, he said to me, you have one of those sharp Western minds, so you can't see what's right in front of you. <laughs> Um, the uh, the nature of conceptual reality can be so beguiling that we actually think that that's what's happening. And it, it seems so solid and so real that we don't even question that that's actually how it is. Um, and so uh, when that happens to us over and over again, uh, we preclude even the investigation that something else might might be available in that moment. And that's what this practice of ideal parent figure is really about, is opening that up so that we can work, uh, we, we can work to see what the conditioning is, and then we can offer an alternative. As I said, it doesn't matter to the database whether you can imagine it or whether or not it happened. And so you can imagine uh, something, and if there's enough emotional content in the imagining, it will make it across the short-term to long-term uh, memory a transfer, and then it will become a new entry. And one of the things that you can do with this, it's a meditation technique really, is begin to take the difficult memories of, of things that actually happen to you and layer around it positive alternatives to that so that you don't automatically snap into 
that uh, defensive or or avoidant uh, way of being around those kinds of memories. Uh, many of us ha have had adverse things happen to us. It's pretty ordinary in the human uh, condition for that to happen. And so we can, be, can become sensitive around particular experiences and, and wish to uh, avoid them. Well, actually, that's one of the alternatives. We, uh, I think that there's three main ways that we sort of respond to things like this. One is that we simply surrender to it and we think that it's true. And we accept that that's how it is. And we accept that's how it's always going to be. And we simply respond from that place of surrender. Another way is that we avoid anything that reminds us or activates us in that area or that experience so that we can avoid the experience or reliving that kind of adverse experience again. And then the third response can be this overcompensation where we react in total opposition and in great strength against what we our habitual response. In attachment, we often, often talk about the uh, attachment mechanism and the exploration mechanism. And in, in secure conditioning, uh, you're able to activate both the attachment mechanism and the exploration mechanism. And then you see in different attachment outcomes different uh, responses uh, to this. So uh, somebody who grows up to be a dismissing adult, they're able to activate the exploration uh, system, but they're not able to activate the attachment mechanism. And somebody who uh, becomes a preoccupied adult, they're able to activate the attachment mechanism, but they're not able to activate the exploration mechanism reliably. And in somebody who's disorganized, they're not really able to reliably activate either the attachment mechanism or the exploration uh, system. And what we want to be able to do is uh, freely activate both of them so that we can connect to people that we want to connect to and that we're free to explore things that have real meaning to us. And in doing that, that movement back and forth, we can fill our lives with meaningful activity and meaningful relationships. And when you don't have that capacity, you see that it begins to change the way that, that, that you experience life. Uh, in that moment, say, if you can't activate the attachment mechanism that somebody interests you and you would like to get to know them, you don't respond that way externally, you don't extend yourself and so the opportunity for that comes and goes without fruition. If you can't activate the exploration method uh, mechanism, then when you see something that's interesting to you that you would like to follow upon, you can't get yourself to do it. But the reasons that you can't get yourself to do it appear in conceptual reality to be compelling enough to prevent you from doing it. And you can often, uh, have a kind of confusion or puzzlement as to why that is, why you can't get yourself to do it. Um, and it is in this very subtle process of how the view forms in conceptual reality 
that convinces us to do it or to not do it. And uh, we need to be able to see clearly what that is and to begin to change it. In the beginning, of course, it is a reflection on what has happened and then a changing uh, of the response uh, manually. I like to say, uh, in the beginning, uh, all of these changes are manual, but if you do the practice enough, they become automatic. And when they become automatic, what you notice is you're simply generating uh, conceptual reality in, the, in a different way than you did before. Um, and the process stays the same, that uh, object meets the sensing capacity, there's consciousness of that arising, it goes through the natural process of perception, and then the intention and action that you take, uh, and then the collecting of the response to that. That piece stays the same, so the experience over and over again is that that process is the same, so nothing has really changed that you can uh, understand consciously, except that I'm choosing differently or my capacity to activate the attachment mechanism, or my capacity to activate the exploration mechanism has changed. Um, and so depending on um, how much there is to do in terms of how adverse the early experiences were, uh, there's a repetition of building up that perceptual database in such a way that when the body-mind uh, looks at how to make uh, the absolute uh, ultimate reality into conceptual reality, there's a different set of informations there that it can use in order to form that. So we do a guidance, um, uh, a guided meditation for this. First, we imagine an ideal parent figure that may I mean, an ideal mother figure and an ideal father figure. Some people's early childhood experiences are so adverse that they're unable to do that. I was working with someone this morning. He's able to imagine a very limited ideal mother figure, but not able to imagine an ideal father figure at all. I can't think of any traits that he would associate to a positive father figure. Sometimes if you can't do either, then the idea would be to an Im imagine an ideal version of yourself that's capable of taking care of your child self. So we always begin this meditation by visualizing ourselves as a young child. And one of the things that we want to be able to do in visualizing ourselves as a young child is to imagine ourselves with our natural innocence intact. Um, sometimes, um, uh, depending on the circumstances of child, childhood, uh, that can get uh, banged up or damaged. And so we want to go back uh, and imagine that child in such a way that that natural innocence, that wonderment at being alive, uh, that joyousness in, in discovering things uh, for the first time is intact. 
and then to imagine ideal parent figures who are perfectly suited to taking care of that young uh, child self. And then we want to be able to imagine an ideal place for that young child self to grow and to thrive and to play and to explore. And then we move through the stages of uh, secure uh, relationships. This comes out of the Dan Brown work. So uh, he calls this approach the three pillars approach. The first is the ideal parent figure. The second is uh, developing metacognition or mentalizing. Uh, Vipassana meditation is you know, phenomenally good at developing mentalizing. And what we noticed in studying uh, the metagroup cohort in comparison with his uh, cohort uh, out east is that the Vipassana meditators are able to mentalize at a much higher rate than all of the, the other group altogether. Although it doesn't relate directly to a change in uh, attachment strategy, which uh, we had sort of thought was the case before that high mentalizing was linked to uh, secure uh, functioning, but that in our cohort did not turn out to be the case. People uh, who were long-term Vipassana meditators had much higher uh, metacognition, but the same underlying attachment. And then the third aspect of the three pillars is the uh, uh, understanding uh, or the psychoeducation around the nature of collaborative relationships and the nature of secure functioning relationships. Um, those are uh, rich topics, and I do offer uh, the meditation and attachment courses on that. Level one covers all of this material. Level two is a more an intense dive into it. And then level three is the uh, ideal parent figure protocol as the primary focus. Um, <clears throat> so the first uh, aspect of secure functioning is a sense of safety that the child feels safe and protected by the ideal parent figures. The second is that it's easy to attune to the ideal uh, parent figures. Whenever you need attention, it's immediately available to you. And it's exactly the right kind of attention. Um, because uh, you get that attention, you feel seen, you feel known, you feel accepted. The third aspect is emotional regulation. Children um, who can rush back to their caregivers and be emotionally regulated no matter how upset they are, feel very free to explore. And kids who don't have that tend to begin to limit their exploration quite early in life so that they don't become so emotionally upset that they can't come back into balance. The fourth aspect is a felt sense of delight, that the ideal uh, uh, caregivers respond with a, a, a sense of constant uh, delight in the experience of being with the child. This is something that all children really need, but not that all children get, depending on the, the care that they received. Um, the sense that when you look at the, 
the caregivers that they respond to you without having to perform for anything, this, the sense of delight in being with you. And then the fifth aspect is that you're supported and encouraged to explore things that are meaningful to you, and that you're not assigned uh, explorations that are meaningful to your caregivers, that it's actually centered on the things that you find meaningful. So uh, I'll take you through all of that uh, uh, when we do the guided meditation, but any questions about this before we begin the meditation? So um, maybe I will make it back after all. So how did that go? Any uh, comments or questions on that technique? Do you have a sense of what I mean by uh, the way that the conditioning, when you draw on the conditioning to begin to imagine things, how depending on uh, the conditioning, it changes the way that you're able to imagine something? Um, because that whole process of, of becoming is... Uh, is really what we want to be able to see into so that we notice the distortions. George? Yeah? I thought it was awesome. Um, yeah, I just, I've studied with you for a number of years now and um, it really, I had to back off a lot sometimes with each parent and think of something else purposefully. Um, so it, it, it was really awesome. Thank you. Good, I'm glad. There's a note. I just wanted to say, I, I too have done the attachment thing with you and I've been doing the ACA stuff and the inner child stuff. And I was doing an imagination exercise earlier. So it's just funny that we should do this. But I found I was getting upset with the dad figure. And it was more like a grief of the dad I didn't have coming mm -hmm. up. Um, but I, it, 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 now that I'm sitting with it, it's like, I'm appreciating my dad too for the fun times, but I guess there's still that residual scared, you know, little girl from that uh, not secure attachment I, I felt with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? 
so yeah I was like what but it's good it's <laughs> to grieve that I suppose no it is my shoulder feels better I usually have a tense shoulder because I think no. he pulled and pushed me as a kid but it's interesting yeah no it, um particularly when you can begin <sighs> to see uh the um the fearfulness or this sadness um in this um meditation is often linked to the activation of the attachment mechanism. When you're conditioned mm -hmm. in childhood to not be able to get your attachment needs met over and over again, it doesn't come up with as this, this buoyant energy of longing. Mm -hmm. It comes up mm -hmm. with a sadness, as a sadness. Mm -hmm. Insecure people, of course, when they're when they're lonely and they feel longing, it's it, it it's this vital energy that propels them to connect. And mm, people mm -hmm. that are insecurely attached, something else mm. happens. Uh, sadness arises, and the sadness actually becomes inhibiting of reaching out and attempting to connect, mm -hmm. because the expectation is that uh, my needs, my attachment needs, won't be met. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really this piece that I'm trying to uh, see if I can explain well enough that you can begin to see it. Something happens, and your attachment mechanism goes off. But rather than experiencing as this, this vital energy that propels you forward, you experience mm -hmm. it as, as sadness, and so you withdraw. Mm -hmm. And actually, what's happening is you want to move into things, not withdraw. Mm -hmm. from them. But because you create the experience based on the database, mm -hmm. experience of longing is then this, this, this thing to avoid. And so you mm -hmm. avoid the connection rather than making it thinking in the moment that you're protecting yourself from the disappointment mm. and sadness. Mm. But that was the, the, the database, not what's right. central now. Yeah. Right. Uh, and if you can't see that fast enough, mm. you will avoid mm -hmm. the possibility of connecting and mm -hmm. then reinforce the view of the database and not exactly. explore what actually is the potential of the present moment. That's mm. the idea. Good. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Someone else? I wrote this in the note. Hi, George. Um, okay. um, uh, we haven't met before, but I've been listening to meditations in the morning. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and what was so interesting is before you had mentioned the the thing about anxious or preoccupied attachment that there's some a problem with exploration and it's so interesting because when i was in the meditation now i could imagine very easily um closeness the closeness came so easily but as soon as i had more involved imagination of the separation and the exploration it felt like so easy for there to be danger right, right. there it was like there was danger in everything that I tried to do. Like everything that I tried in my imagination to do, I was hurting myself. I was right. like, the, so, yeah. and it was just sort of noticing that as it was happening and trying to like, trying to come up with like what, <laughs> how a parent could be that would make me not feel that way or that but, like, how, and it was challenging. Um, but I, but the insight is really important that, there's a 
a conditioned response to the possibility of exploration that makes it all dangerous. And so that can be very inhibiting, very limiting in terms of what you're willing to do. And uh, so that it would be useful to train your mind out of doing that so that you can get back to that joyfulness of exploration, that, that wonderment, uh, which is such a vital energy to carry you into the exploration. Good, good work. Someone else? Um, yeah, hey, hey George, uh, this is Cedric. I had a question. Um, do you know anything about the suitability of doing IPF, let's say on a retreat? Like, let's say you were to let's say do a um, self-led retreat and do like, you know, three days of seven hours a day of IPF. Do you, do you know anything about that? Any opinions? <laughs> well, one of the reasons that you want somebody to facilitate it for you is so that they can evaluate whether or not what you're imagining is in the secure range or, or is just a reinforcement of the insecure range. So what's usually recommended is that you have a facilitator listening to you as you're doing it so that they can make that evaluation and, and help uh, make you the, uh, make corrections or to use uh, a, an auto, audio recording of a session that you've done that has been monitored. So that if you wanted to take some recordings of uh, sessions that you've done, and listen to them on retreat, I think that that would be fine to do. But I'm, I always worry about the possibility of imagining uh, some uh, reinforcement of the insecure attachment uh, when you think that you're imagining some secure response to it and in the end reinforcing the old conditioning rather than pushing you in the direction of the new conditioning. Okay, yep, that makes sense. Thanks. Good. Yeah, in the beginning, what we're going to be able to do is imagine our original conditioning. And that's why uh, when you move into a, a deeper practice of this, it should be guided by somebody who can help uh, in real time interpret your uh, imagine, imagination and uh, correct anything that um, goes awry. Um, it, um, it doesn't take that long, I don't think, to train yourself out of it. Um, uh, you know, when I say not that long, four to six months. <laughs> and then you can now begin to look at um, the, the sort of really rigid views that some of us develop. Uh, and then once you do that, you can uh, move on to the secondary uh, attachment mechanism and, and, and uh, understand the kind of relationships that you form or the pattern of relationships that you form and then uh, attempt to move those into more secure functioning as well. It's, uh, I, I, one of the reasons I'm such a proponent of this uh, so much just to, to try and reveal my own biases is um, I have, I've had 28 years of psychotherapy, and at the end of the 28 years of psychotherapy, my underlying attachment strategy was the same as it was when I started, um, which was, you know, 
staggeringly disappointing. <laughs> and doing uh, IPF for three years, I've moved into the secure territory. I mean, it's phenomenal um, when you really get into the, uh, the nuts and bolts of how you create uh, conceptual reality and, and begin to, uh, once you can really see it, you have a lot of agency in changing it, but as long as you're in the what water ask the fish stage, it just seems to be the way that it is. And you have, there's nothing you can do about it. It just keeps happening again and again. It's, uh, there's, a, I have a lightness about it now because uh, it, it, I've, I, I'm on the other side, but I, I, I think that that's a relatively short amount of time in comparison to how long I tried the other approaches. Everybody good? <clears throat> so uh, I teach this class on Thursdays. Uh, it's intermediate or advanced. And I teach on Tuesday nights a beginner's class um, so that you can learn the basic techniques and the basic concepts and then come to this one, uh, which is not really, uh, I don't really adjust the content of this class at all for people that are, are newer to practice. and so. It may seem um, uh, uh, too challenging, I, or at least that's some of the feedback I get. Um, so we do have those two things available. I will be getting, be, uh, doing a series of day-longs on the level one attachment stuff in October. And then we will do a, a, a new level two starting toward the end of the year. Um, we have decided to do a retreat between Christmas and New Year's. So if you, uh, it'll be a virtual retreat. We did, we just completed one, which I think went really well and people seem to get uh, uh, quite a bit out of it. And so we've, uh, we're gonna make some adjustments to the format and, and see if we can um, get that to happen again. I am doing every third Saturday, a day long on the, uh, uh, Manual of Insight, the Progress of Insight from Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, approach to the four path model of enlightenment, if you want to come to that. Uh, all of the, the information for that stuff is on the website and you can uh, sign up for it. If you want support for your daily meditation practice, I do morning meditation uh, as a live conference call at 7.30 on the morning, Monday through Friday, Pacific time. Uh, and you can pick that up on Patreon, which is the site that we're that's hosting that for us. And uh, the the links for that are also on the website. Uh, this teaching is offered on a Donna basis. Donna is a Pali word that that, that means generosity. Uh, there's a link for uh, donations on the same page as the paragraph and link for this class. Um, we do uh, offer the, I do offer the teachings. Uh, uh, free of charge, and then at the same time, hope that uh, you'll support us uh, by making a donation. Obviously, these are challenging times, so anything is appreciated. And if you're not able to do it, that's also totally fine. Thank you for coming, and we'll we'll see you uh, next time. Bye. Thanks, George. Thanks. Bye, George. How can I find information about the Tuesday beginners class?
It's also on the website. There'll be a paragraph okay. and a link for it. Okay, thanks. Thank you very Good. much. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.